This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. In Canada right now, we have seen 2,846 deaths attributed to COVID-19. And we do have modeling numbers that are coming out from the federal government. And we can tell you right now that they suggest by May the 5th, as many as 3,883 people could die due to COVID-19, that the initial models released back on April 9th underpredicted the number of deaths in Canada. We'll talk more about that in about seven minutes from now. I want to take some time and talk about our Olympic athletes because you've got to feel for people who are at the highest level of anything and yet aren't able to do what they have been setting themselves ready to do, and that is compete in the Olympics. And now we see numbers that come out that, again, suggest that Olympic athletes really do not get much of a share of the pie when it comes to the International Olympic Committee. Dr. Angela Schneider is the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University. Dr. Schneider, thanks so much for joining us today. That's a pleasure. Are these announcements things that come out on a regular basis showing IOC earnings and how much of the pie goes to Olympic athletes and maybe we don't pay as much attention, or is this something fairly new? Well, there has been a history of a lack of transparency, and the athletes have been definitely calling for greater accountability, and that's why I think they are now accessing funds, uh, information that they didn't get before. So, for example... Uh, they're arguing that there's an extreme unbalanced distribution of funds because it is athletes who are the, are the ambassadors and sell the Olympic Games, basically, and they only receive 4.1% of the funding directly from the Olympic movement, and the IOC's annual revenues exceed $1.4 billion. Boy, okay, let's let's stop on those numbers for just a second and pay some close attention to them. So we're not talking about Canadian athletes here or American athletes or British athletes. We're talking about athletes collectively at the Olympic level taking in roughly 4.1% of well over a billion dollars? Across the board, for all of the support, all of the measures that are taken as forms of support uh, for the Olympic Games, and it is a multi-billion dollar industry. Now, you see, what, what recently has happened is the athletes are starting to organize collectively in a, in a way they haven't done before. And one of the reasons, actually, was what happened with the IOC's response to the Russian anti-doping scandal. It was interesting because as a fallout, an international athlete activist group called Global Athlete ha- was formed right after um, there was dissatisfaction with the way that was handled from the athlete perspective and they are now calling for the olympic sport to be compared to professional sport and even though the ioc claims it's a non-profit status uh, it relies on broadcast rights and revenues and makes it more similar they're arguing for professional sports leagues yet five of the largest professional sports leagues in the world pay their players 40 to 60% of their revenues, whereas the IOC spends 4.1% on the athlete. That is unbelievable. We're talking with Dr. Angela Schneider, Director of the International Center for Olympic Studies 
at the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University about information that Olympic athletes have been able to get. They know that they are not going to Tokyo this year, that things have been pushed ahead, and hopefully they can happen in 2021, and that we're looking at 95.9% of IOC revenues going somewhere other than the athletes. Dr. Schneider, do we know where this money has gone in any way? Well, yes, we know that it goes to National Olympic Committee, so indirectly it's, it's help, helping. We know it goes to international sports federations, but, you know, we've had some scandals with that, right? You know, our international sports uh, federations haven't always had uh, the cleanest bill of health from a financial perspective, right? There's some, been some serious scandals. Uh, we know that it goes to the Olympic Channel, to the Olympic Museum, and the Olympic Study Centers. And all those things are not bad. Those are good things. And the athletes aren't opposed to that happening because you need organizational support for things to happen. But what they're saying is that the prioritization is imbalanced. And instead of them spending the privately earned revenues, um, they're asking on, on just these things that the majority should be shifted towards athletes more like professionals. Now, why would they argue that? Well, in fact, if you look at the details, athletes that train for the Olympic Games train as hard or, in some cases, even harder than professional athletes. So the history there, though, is that, of course, it's amateurism rule, right? It only got struck down in 1986 that, that the Olympic athlete had to be an amateur athlete, and that was the way the IOC was no, was able to not give them any funding and, in fact, prevent them from earning money from competing. What do you think? Something like this going public, something like this having probably as, as many supporters on the athlete side as, as anywhere else, do you think it has a chance to make a difference, or is this one of those really slow, long, let's hope for the right head of the IOC to come in to make a difference? Well, I think awareness is the first step. And so I think with the position now that the athletes are taking, which is a much more organized position, and and I think it's probably about time. You know, athletes' rights have been not on on the priority list in a number of sport organizations for a number of years. So this is not a bad thing. And it may result in some balance happening, but you're right. It is going to take some significant movement uh, within the membership of the IOC. And, of course, there's some conflicts of interest here because the members of the IOC, many of them are heads of National Olympic Committees or heads of international sports federations. So if we pay the athletes more money and it's a zero-sum game, where is that money going to come from? So you see the question here, there's got to be a balance, though. And I, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And it's a great thing that these questions are, are getting asked because also this whole question about what the athletes... So who's been paying for these athletes to go and compete? It's been families and small towns and other people contributing. They're putting on all this support and money for the most part for many athletes because a lot of them aren't sponsored by high-end sponsorship. And so it's it's Joe and Jane down the road that's been supporting them in their communities for years and years and years. And the athletes are saying, hey, wait a minute, the IOC made a heck of a lot of money off of that. How come this isn't coming back? You know, so that, that they're raising some good questions. And I do think there needs to be more accountability and transparency. Dr. Schneider, it is so easy for any story to really get lost in everything else that's going on in the world right now. Thank you so much for helping to outline what this one is all about. We'll follow it and see what happens. Hopefully good things for Olympic athletes, because without them, you don't have much of an Olympics. You don't. (laughs) You don't.
don't have anything at all. You're right. <laughs> Dr. Schneider, keep safe. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. You too. It's been a pleasure. That's Dr. Angela Schneider, director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. And again, it, it is one of those things, and we, we want to make sure we don't lose sight of important stories. And that's one of those that has been ongoing for so long. Declan Hill is an author, and he told a great story on London Live once about the World Cup of Soccer, with very, very similar organization. Um, or I guess we look at FIFA as being the organization, but you have money that goes to all of kind of the, the independent bodies in each country. Some countries manage that very well. I think you could look at the Canadian Olympic Committee or Canada Soccer and say they manage that money quite well. We've never heard anything bad about them. But he talked about a story involving the Nigerian World Cup soccer team where they were a night before a match at the World Cup. And all of a sudden, all of the dignitaries of Nigerian soccer showed up with all their friends and anybody else they could bring in. And they found that they didn't like the hotel accommodations they had. So they booted the team out of their hotel accommodations, took that hotel. The team had to go and stay beside some freeway somewhere and lost all three matches they played. But at that point, it didn't matter because the party had begun for all of the organizers. Now, the party needs to be shared by the people who make the party possible. Come on. The longer it takes for us to begin a reopening in the province, of course, the more difficult it becomes for small and medium-sized businesses, many who have closed their doors because they are not on the list of essential services. In just a few minutes, I want to outline the latest in smallbusinessincrisis.ca data that has come in. This was a website that was started next week. But even before we get to that, there are small and medium-sized businesses that need to protect themselves because they're not there. It's like parking your car and walking away and hoping nobody comes along to take something out of it. Joining us right now is London Police Constable Sandasha Bow. Constable Bow, how are things? Oh, we may have lost oh. Constable Bow. Oh, no, I think we've got I'm you here, back. I'm Constable here. Bow, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Can you outline maybe some tips for small and medium-sized business owners in order to keep their businesses safe while they aren't there? There are so many things that business owners can do right now to keep their property safe or to help keep their property safe. And while we do have a page specifically with these tips on our website under crime prevention, I'll share a few of the more important ones with you uh, just to remember. So one of the, the most important ones is to remove valuables from your windows, your storefronts. If criminals can't see the items inside, then they won't be tempted to try to get in to remove what's inside of your business. Another great thing to do is to take cash out of your registers, leave the cash tray out and visibly empty. Uh, it's another deterrence because cash and property are items that thieves want. And if they can see that there's none in there, then they might move on. Uh, consider installing a surveillance system that can be monitored remotely. Uh, we've received tips from business owners in the past where they get alerted to movement inside of their property and then we're able to get there. And in fact, a few weekends ago, we had three separate break and enters where officers were able to respond after getting tips from the public and arrest individuals with respect to those break and enters. 
Um, another great tip is to put film uh, over the glass and to post on the doors and windows that the premises are monitored by an alarm company. There's no money, money kept on the premises. Include the number to London Police Headquarters, uh, just in case anybody notices a break-in or any damage. And like I said, there are a number of tips on our website, but you can find them all under Crime Prevention. Constable Bow, thank you so much for outlining this because it's one of those things where if you are a, a small business owner, the owner of anything, I mean, this works for, for your home. You don't want to show valuables in your window. It just helps to cut down on potential break-in, potential theft, and a lot of police work as well. So we really appreciate the time. Really, thank you for having me. And we also, we can't stress enough that we need the public to continue doing exactly what they're doing, looking out for their neighbours and reporting crimes to us. If we don't know, we can't go. Great point. Constable Bow, keep safe. All right, you too. Thank you. That is Constable Sandasha Bow from London Police Services. And that's just it. I mean, do keep an eye on your neighbors. Do make sure that even if it's not to help prevent a potential crime, it's just to make sure everybody's doing okay. Because that other element of mental health is still at play. And you may not notice it, but maybe there's someone who lives right near you who hasn't been in touch with anybody, whose family is not from this area and they don't have a lot of contact and they're not about to sit out on the front porch and wait for it. So make sure that uh, that you are at least paying attention to what's going on in your neighborhood or do that thing where you think of one person that you haven't talked to in a long time and set out to talk to them tonight, however it may be. doesn't have to be over Zoom. You don't have to set up a big thing. Just make sure you, you at least do that. And that's a big, big help in terms of mental health. There's a lot being talked about that humans need hugs. You know we do. As tough as some people might be, humans need hugs. And what is something you're not supposed to do right now? Hug. I mean, you know, partners have kind of had that conversation. Do you hug? Do you kiss? Do you, you know, oh, you went to the grocery store. You know, should I give you a hug now? Uh, it's, it's kind of a weird situation, but in terms of protecting your own wares, especially for small and medium sized business owners, if you closed up shop and then left, make sure that you think, okay, what, what did we leave on display in the window? Do we have one of those signs that says we do have the premises being watched? All of that makes a big difference because you want to protect small and medium sized business as much as you can because they're going through some difficult times already. Almost as soon as the COVID-19 pandemic came into being, you had anyone and everyone asking the question, how do I go about not getting it? And because of that, you get all kinds of different answers. And you get all kinds of suggestions. And then you get people saying, well, you know, this. Oh, well, I heard this. And because of something like social media, things can be circulated at an immense rate. And it's up to all of us to look and say, all right, where's that coming from? Who said that? What's happening here? What is it suggesting? If I turn around three times in the morning clockwise and then three times late at night counterclockwise, that limits my ability to contract any virus? No, that's wrong. That's, that's insane. 
There is no science behind that. And that's what you have to look at. And late last week, we had U.S. President Donald Trump with what will be a famous line from all of this, unfortunately, a sickening and reckless line, in my opinion, talking about the suggestion that disinfectants brought into the body, into the lungs, may have an impact. It's something we could check into. He'd be interested in in finding out more about it. Or light, some kind of light that could be brought into the body through the skin or by some other way. That could have an effect, perhaps. And it leads us to a conversation about pseudoscience or about fake cures. And these pop up all the time now when it comes to something as serious as COVID-19. But pseudoscience has been around for a long time. Fake cures, they've been around for a long time. And social media just helps to propagate them. Around and around and around they go. So we wanted to look at this today on London Live. But look at it through a lens of something that has been subjected to fake cures and pseudoscience and suggestions for a long, long time. And that something is autism. And we are very lucky to have with us someone who has done a lot of thinking about this, a lot of writing about this. She is an autistic advocate. She is the author of It's an Autism Thing. She is the author of I'll Help You Understand It and the CEO of Autistic Inclusive Meets. Please welcome Emma Dalmain to London Live. Emma, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Emma, let's talk a little bit about what the, I guess, the the role of, of pseudoscience and fake cures has come to be with relation to autism. I mean, there were a lot of people who would say, no, no, don't get vaccines because that could lead to autism. Or here's a cure for autism. You have children with autism. You are on the spectrum yourself. What is it like to, to be hearing this all in relation to autism? It seems all the time. Well, the thing is, a lot of it is to do with language as well, because when you say with autism, it sounds like with a cold, with flu. So it sounds like it's something that you can cure or remove. So I would prefer if we could use autistic during the interview, if that's all right. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, it's it's always been around. I mean, autism is an invisible disability, isn't it? It's a neurological difference of the brain. So anything you use um, on a child you know, um, any gains that they make in their development can be attributed to whatever it is you're using. So that doesn't help at all. <laughs> so if a, a child, you know, is making natural developments in their language or, you know, in academically, and someone is using a particularly restrictive diet or TRS collation spray or something else on them, they will immediately say, oh, no, I did that. You know, nothing is attributed to the child. How often would you say that you come across things that people will either suggest to you or that you will read that claim to have some kind of ability in in the world of of proclaimed science when it probably isn't all that proclaimed and all that scientific? Mm. Daily. Daily. There are people daily making suggestions and um, touting, you know, promoting and selling so-called autism cures on social media. And it can range from uh, MMS, which is Miracle Mineral Solution, which is made from chlorine dioxide bleach, 
uh, turpentine, which you clean your paintbrushes with, GC Math, which is a banned blood product in the UK, uh, the GAPS diet, which is a particularly restrictive diet, chelation, which is getting rid of heavy metals, which you're not going to have unless you've been mining. You know, but because they say, you know, if you've had a vaccine, you must have heavy metal poisoning. This is why you're autistic. And there's there's so many different... There's a Nemechek protocol, which uses high doses of fish oils and vitamin C. And this. And the problem is they are so bloody dangerous. They're unscientifically proven. They're not prescribed by a medical professional. There's no peer research backing on these things. And parents are just flocking to them because of the rhetoric that's put out. You know, the negative rhetoric of, you know, you, you have to heal and purge autism because it's such a dreadful thing. And this is why I personally am so angry with Trump, <laughs> because this is the second time now he's come out with something like this. The first time was when he said vaccines cause autism. And then we've got Mark Grennan from the Genesis 2 church who contacted him and told him all about MMS. So he says he says that he's sent him the info. And two, three days later, you've got Trump on there talking about disinfectant being injected into people. So, of course, Mark Wren and the Genesis 2 Church and all the bleach promoters have jumped on it and said that's what Trump was promoting. So it's validated their claims in a way. Wow. We are talking with Emma Delmain, who is an autistic advocate and author of It's an Autism Thing. I'll help you understand it. CEO of Autistic Inclusive Meets as well, which you can find as AIM, A-I-M. You have Thank things you. like that. And, and how how much does that make you feel that, you know, the, the real message takes a step back? Because for a long time, you heard those claims that vaccines can cause autism. And yet there are all these studies that suggest no, 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 no. There is no scientific yeah. evidence of that. And then all of a sudden, yeah. maybe there's some headway being made. And then somebody else in a prominent position steps up and speaks again. This is the problem, isn't it? I mean, with with what Trump has said now, it has validated the the bleachers and the anti-vaxxers. And they are now saying, you know, that it's Bill Gates. It's a depopulation program. You know, there's going to be microchips. Bill Gates has made this this um, disease, you know, it's been manufactured in a lab. He's only done it because of the vaccine that he wants to sell. You know, it's just a nightmare of pseudoscience and it makes me feel disgusted and very sad because we are not diseased or ill or injured. You know, we're, we're not, we're just neurologically different. And every time it looks like we're making some headway of acceptance and education, which is why I wrote my book and, and this is why we have um, my organization, which is autistic-led, by the way. As soon as it looks like we're making some sort of headway, you've got someone of that standing coming out with things like that. And it's just like a slap in the face every time. We're talking with Emma Delmain, autistic advocate, and again, author of It's an Autism Thing, I'll Help You Understand It. Emma, before this pandemic began, there was a lot of talk in our province, in this country, about funding for autism and a lot of challenges. In the UK, mm. how is funding for autism? It's not brilliant. It's not good enough anywhere. You know, it's, it's something that's very overlooked. And um, autistic people are often seen as less which was a shame. I mean, without us, people wouldn't be tapping away on their phones. They wouldn't have computers. They wouldn't have the internet. They wouldn't have electric. <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> it's true, though. 
So um, Trump wouldn't be speaking on his microphone, would he? You know, there's no, he would all not. these things. No, he would not. So um, it's yeah, needs to be worked on in all areas, definitely. Well, we really appreciate your time and your insight on this. If somebody did want to get your book, where can we find that? Oh, it's on a website called um, staspublications.co.uk. It's um, a speech and language website. They've got some really good resources on there. And um, I've, been, I've been campaigning for five years against autistic mistreatment, you know, and um, I'm really grateful for you having me on. Well, keep up the work because you are spreading good information, information that we all need to hear, and information that goes against a lot of the pseudoscience out there. Emma, thanks for the time Thank today. You. Be safe. Oh, can I say one other thing really fast? You sure can. Any parents, <laughs> any parents who might be listening, um, if you need support and advice from autistic adults, who most of us are parents ourselves, I run a group um, on Facebook called Autism Inclusivity. So do look us up, do come, join join in, you know, and we will help you, we'll guide you on anything that you want to know. Don't listen to quacks saying that autism can be cured because it cannot. It's there not a go. sickness to be cured. Thank you very much. Thanks, Emma. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. That is Emma Delmain. And Emma is an author and an autistic advocate. And looking at the lens of pseudoscience, you look at all of the things that are said, and look at what Emma pointed to turpentine and bleach had you ever heard the term bleachers when it wasn't something that you sat on at a high school football game bleachers that's a thing maybe i'm naive give me a break you know this this is the kind of stuff that you got to watch out for what was what was the big concern right away from any company that made any kind of disinfectant after US President Donald Trump's remarks getting it out there for people not to do this and yet there is a story in the New York Post that indicated that year over year the number of poison control calls that they received was up on Friday night how do you like that <laughs> 